Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 is our text from God's Word today. title of our message is From Mystery to Revealed. Mystery to Revealed. This is part two of a message that we began a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, uh, and then we focused our attention on verses 1 through uh, 9. And then today we'll focus our attention on verses 10 through 13. But I want to read this entire passage. Um, so we're taking 10 through 13 in its context. Um, this is the word of God. Ephesians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have the words of life. Father, in this time, help us to give our undivided attention to your wondrous word. Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Father, give us a teachable spirit ready to receive whatever it is that you want to teach us through your word today. And Father, we pray that we would be not only hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of your word by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. General Dwight Eisenhower, as commander of Operation Overlord, maybe you don't know it as that, maybe you know it as D-Day, Operation Overlord, better known as D-Day, in which over 150,000 troops would storm the beaches of Normandy, France in order to push back the German invasion. As commander of the troops, knowing what was ahead, and perhaps maybe, maybe not realizing just how bad it was going to be, what a great battle that would be, but, but at some level realizing what was getting ready to happen. He had the task of motivating those troops that were going to be flying over and coming by boat. When those doors of those boats opened up, that they would have the courage to step out 
and face whatever was waiting on them on that beach. He had the task to get them ready. And one of the ways he did this was by reminding them that the hardship, the suffering that they were getting ready to endure was for a cause much greater than themselves. He didn't look at them or he didn't send them a message and say, do this for yourself. He didn't even say, do this for your fellow soldiers fighting next to you. He didn't even say, do this for the battle that you will face today. I want to read what he said in his brief but moving message to the troops getting ready for this incredible battle. He said, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. General Eisenhower understood this truth, that the greater the cause for which we live, the more courage we will have in laying down our lives for that cause. If we're living for something really small, we won't have courage to suffer for it. But if we're living for something really big, that's bigger than ourselves, then we will have courage to suffer. The reality, church, for us as followers of Christ is that we have been called by God to suffer in this life. It is a suffering that is unique to Christians. It is suffering for the cause of Christ. When God saves us through Christ, our citizenship is transferred from earth to heaven, which means that we are now strangers on this earth, but it doesn't mean that we are to remove ourselves from engaging the world around us. We are strangers here on a mission, and that mission will lead to suffering. And I want you to know today, God wants to encourage you and me today with this truth. It is worth it, church. It is worth it. Why is suffering for Christ worth it? Well, because uh, we have as God's people, the grand privilege, something that people who don't belong to Christ don't have. As those who belong to Christ, we have the grand privilege of living for something far bigger and greater than ourselves. It is something worthy of our very lives. And this thing that is worthy is the glory of God, which is magnified as the mystery of the gospel is revealed to the nations. Did you catch what I said? Not merely that the mystery is revealed, but as it is revealed, it magnifies the glory of God. A couple of weeks ago, we began looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And as I said, this is part two of that message. Let me remind you of our main idea statement of these verses. I'll remind you of the context and, and briefly remind you of what we learned learned in verses 1 through 9, and then we'll dive into verses 10 through 13. Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 13 to teach us this church, that by God's grace and for his glory, we know and make known the gospel among the nations, no matter the cost. By God's grace and for his glory, we know and make known the gospel among the nations, no matter the cost. 
In the previous passage, Paul has explained, if you were to glance your eyes back to the second half of chapter 2, Paul has explained the unity achieved by the cross of Christ. That through the cross, Jesus destroyed not only the separation between us and God, but he also destroyed the hostility that existed between us, between you and me and us and others between Jew and Gentile, specifically in this context. And the result is that in Christ, God has created one new man in place of the two, he says. And this one new man consists of both Jews and Gentiles. Here, people who hated one another. This one new man, this one new body, consists of Jews and Gentiles who have believed in Jesus and are now together citizens of God's kingdom, together members of God's family, and together pieces of God's temple. And that teaching on the unity purchased by the cross of Christ then prompts Paul to pray for these believers, to be strengthened with supernatural power so that they would know the love of Christ, so that they would then live out that love, so that they would live in the unity that Jesus purchased for them. So the the, the thinking, the teaching on the unity of the body of Christ purchased by the blood of Jesus prompts Paul to pray for them. But remember, we said last week, he interrupts himself. He interrupt before he gets to the prayer he interrupts himself. Look at chapter 3 verse 1. Paul says for this reason <clears throat> excuse me. For this reason then he actually doesn't start the prayer until he gets to verse 14. So skip your eyes to verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father in heaven. And then what comes after verse 14 is the actual prayer. What interrupted him and led to the digression in verses 2 through 13 is his description of his current situation. At the end of verse 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, and he's going to pray for them, but then he says, A prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians from prison in Rome. He mentions that current situation that he's in three times in this letter. He says that he is in prison on behalf of you Gentiles. Well, that would have made their ears perk up if they were paying attention. And we say, whoa, whoa, you're a prisoner on, on our behalf, on behalf of Gentiles. We're Gentiles, and not just any Gentiles, but he says on your behalf, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, as I said a couple of weeks ago, Paul probably figured this would prompt some questions in the minds of the Ephesians, namely two, I think. What does Paul mean when he says that he's in prison on our behalf? What's he talking about? And number two, how ought we to respond to Paul's imprisonment? And Paul answers those questions under this banner, this theme of mystery revealed. In other words, the reason he is in prison on behalf of the Gentiles is because there has been a mystery that has been revealed. And this revealed mystery is nothing less than the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so we're referring to this as a gospel mystery, a good news mystery. And that's what verses 1 through 13 is all about. Paul is explaining this gospel mystery that has landed him in prison on behalf of you Gentiles. Help us walk through these verses. We're approaching them by asking four questions of the text and answering those questions with four truth statements. And we looked at the first two of those a couple of weeks ago in part one. I just want to briefly remind us of those questions and answers. The first thing we ask is, what is this gospel mystery? And verse verse 6 very clearly answers that question. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so I shared this first truth with you. The gospel mystery is that all nations are included in God's salvation plan. Now, friends, I, I think I perhaps did injustice to the weightiness of this passage, even in my wording of that truth statement. The, 
also I want to maybe reemphasize even better for us than I did a couple of weeks ago. The, the, the mystery is not merely that the Gentiles are included if we simply think that they're going to be included as second-class citizens in God's kingdom. The mystery that overwhelmed and, and just completely shocked the, the Jewish mind was that the Gentiles would be included as equals with the Jews, that there would be one body of Christ. There would be one new man in place of the two. There would be equal citizens in God's kingdom. And so make sure you, you feel the weight of that. that the, the mystery is not merely that the Gentiles can be saved, but that they will be united together as one people with the Jews. It's going to be one body of Christ. The togetherness of the believers in Christ is crucial in understanding not only what the mystery is, but the purpose behind the church living it out, which is what we're going to talk about more today. And so then the second question we asked in part one was this. Once we understood what is the gospel mystery, then we said, what is our relationship to the gospel mystery? And we answered that question by looking at verses 2 through 5 and then verses 7 through 9. Verses 2 through 5 says that Paul um, is, a, is a steward of this mystery that has been entrusted to him. In other words, it was something that had been entrusted to him to use in a way that honored the owner. And then verse 7 through 9, Paul described how he honored the owner of this mystery. Who is the owner? It's God. God is the one who wrote this story and then revealed it. How is he going to honor the owner with this mystery that he's been entrusted with? And namely, we said, he's been entrusted with the good news of this mystery now revealed in order that he might tell it to other people. That is what he is to do with this gospel mystery. Tell it to other people. He said he was made a minister. That word means servant of this gospel to preach. That simply means to tell good news, to proclaim good news to the Gentiles. Remember that word ethne. It simply means nations to tell them the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of God, which was a mystery until God made it known. And though we are not apostles in the sense that Paul was an apostle, we have been entrusted with the very same gospel message, which means we have the same great privilege that Paul had to go and tell this gospel to the nations. So to answer that second question, what is our relationship to the gospel mystery? We said this, the gospel mystery has been revealed to us so that we can proclaim it to all the nations. Church, we have a global gospel. It is good news for the whole world. And so because we have a global gospel, we have a global mission. And again, this mission is to tell the nations that Christ has come and that God's plan is to unite everyone who believes in Jesus for salvation into one body, one fellowship. It's the grandest of privilege to be able to look at anyone in the world and say, you are a sinner separated from God because of your sin, but God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And if you will believe in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and you will become an equal member of God's family. Maybe today you need to hear that message. Maybe you're dead in your sin and under the wrath of God today. Friend, please Please consider the consequences of remaining dead in your sin. And please see the glory of God shown in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ who bled and died to rescue you from your sin. Believe in Christ today and be saved. The church, remember what prompted this digression. It was Paul's imprisonment. And so as we read the glorious good news of the gospel mystery, we must remember that the one who is writing of this good news is writing as he is in chains. 
You see, the call to proclaim the gospel mystery is a call to suffer. Now, that could be discouraging. It could be discouraging, and Paul knows that. But remember, the greater the cause for which we live, the more courage we will have in facing suffering for that, for that cause. And so Paul now gives a purpose statement. What is God's purpose behind this gospel mystery? As, as grand as the, the, the mystery revealed is, Paul's going to lift our eyes to the greatest thing in all of the world. Is there a purpose that is worth suffering for? Truth number three is this, church. The gospel mystery lived out in the church showcases the manifold wisdom of God. Is there a purpose? What's the purpose? The gospel mystery lived out in the church showcases the manifold wisdom of God. Verse 10 begins with these words, so that. That means what's going to come after is a purpose statement. So that. In other words, here is God's purpose in revealing and proclaiming the gospel mystery. Here then becomes our purpose in proclaiming the gospel mystery that God has revealed. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, verse 10, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I believe this is one of the weightiest verses in all of Scripture. I want to read it again. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We're going to spend most of our time on this verse today. Let's try to unpack that statement for a moment by asking three questions. Number one, what is being made known in verse 10? Number two, to whom is it being made known? And number three, who is making it known? What's being made known? To whom is it being made known? And who is making it known? First, notice that something is being made known. Something is being revealed. What is it? We've been talking about the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles and God's plan of salvation being revealed. And that's what we talked mostly about in part one was making known the good news that the Gentiles can be a part of the family of God. But that's not what is being made known in this verse. What is being made known is something even greater. And and it's, it's a really short answer. You say, what is being made known that's even greater than that? God. God. That is who is being made known. God. Namely, His unmatched, unparalleled, supreme, manifold wisdom. The word used to describe the wisdom of God in verse 10 can be translated different ways. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to put it into a word. It's God's manifold or multi-sided or multifaceted wisdom. The word was used in that time to refer to a multicolored bouquet of flowers or a multicolored garment. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is our Old Testament, that word, that Greek word was used to translate the Hebrew word that referred to or described Joseph's, what we often call the coat of many colors, right? The, this Greek word was used in the Hebrew, uh, in the Greek translation to describe the many colored coat that Joseph was given by his father Jacob. And I think another helpful way for us to think about this word would be the illustration of a diamond. Uh, a diamond is multi-sided, right? That's what makes, it's not just a mirror that just kind of reflects all light in one direction. What makes a diamond so, so incredible is that when light hits it, it just shoots that light off in multi multiple different directions because it is multi-sided. And each one of those sides adds to the beauty and the value of that diamond. Friend, God's wisdom is not one color. 
God's wisdom is not one-sided. It is much more glorious than that. One of my favorite verses in all of God's word comes from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. And there, God says through the prophet Isaiah, it is too light. Or another way you could say is too small. Like it's, it's too little or too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. If God only works salvation for the Jews, it will be like a one-colored bouquet of flowers or a one-colored coat or just a, a mirror instead of a multi-sided diamond. But that wouldn't be enough to showcase the manifold, the multi-sided, the multifaceted wisdom of God. It would be too easy of a thing for God to unite one nation together. It would be like a strong man showing off his strength by breaking a toothpick. Well, he can do far more than that if he's a strong man. So he's got he's to do more to show off that incredible strength. And if God just saved the Jews, if he just saved one nation, it would be, he could do that. But it's too, it's too easy. It's too small of a thing. God's wisdom is far greater. God's wisdom is so great that he can unite people from all nations together, which is exactly what he's doing through the mystery of the gospel. Church, that is manifold wisdom. That is supreme wisdom. And Paul is saying that the gospel mystery, the union of Jew and Gentile, when you hear Gentile, you got to remember all nations, all peoples of the world, the union of those people through the cross of Christ, the multi-ethnic makeup of the church is the evidence of God's manifold wisdom. In other words, when someone looks at the genuine peace with one another and with God that exists among people from various nations, including Jew and Gentile, who believed in the gospel, the only explanation is God did that. The only right response is, wow, wow, look at God. Look at the wisdom of God. It's bigger and more complex and more beautiful and more mesmerizing than we ever realized then we can even put into words, truly God alone is worthy of all the glory. And so that is what is being made known in this gospel mystery. It is nothing less than the glory and the grandeur of the wisdom of God. Now to whom is this manifold wisdom of God being made known? That's what is being made known through the mystery of the gospel being revealed. The, the manifold wisdom of God. But to whom is it being made known? It is being made known to the rulers and authorities, catch this, in the heavenly places. This is the fourth of five times in the letter of the Ephesians that we see this word, heavenly places. Chapter 1, verse 3, we are blessed with Christ, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Chapter 1, verse 20, the resurrected Christ has been seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. In chapter 2, verse 6, God has seated us who are in Christ, with Christ, in the heavenly places. And now in chapter 3, verse 10, God's glorious wisdom is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see, in many ways, Paul's letter to the Ephesians lifts us out of what can often feel like the mundane of this life and sets us as followers of Christ on a higher ground as we come to see with eyes of faith what is unseen to us through our physical eyes but is no less real. 
We are being taught to see life from God's perspective. See it. He is doing something far bigger and greater than we can see with our human eyes. He is unveiling before the angelic hosts of heaven and the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places His manifold wisdom as He unites into one kingdom. People from every nation. Right now, the angels and the demons are learning just how powerful and wise and glorious the one true God really is as they see his plan for the nations unfolding before their eyes. This is one of the reasons why I said a couple of weeks ago that the gospel mystery is both earthly and heavenly. That it has not just a global impact, but a universal impact. But then that third question that I mentioned, we've got to notice who it is who is making known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this is, this is where we really come in. Ultimately, God is making known His manifold wisdom, but in His sovereign plan, He's making known His manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in, he- in the heavenly places through His church. Through the church. Please don't miss that phrase in verse 10. How is it that rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are seeing the manifold wisdom of God? Amazingly, it's not by looking directly at God. It's by looking at the church. Now, how is that? Let's put these pieces together. The manifold wisdom of God is seen in the unveiling of the mystery that God wrote. The mystery is that people from all nations are united into one equal people at peace with God and with one another. So where do the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places look to see God's manifold wisdom? They look at the evidence of his manifold wisdom. They look at the fruit. They look at the multi-ethnic unified people washed and united by the blood of Jesus. They look at the church because the church is where we see God's manifold wisdom on display. Remember, church is not a building. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. It is a, or a few weeks ago, it's a people. The people who make up the church because of the mystery of the gospel that it's for the nations are multi-ethnic. They're Jew and Gentile. They speak different languages. They come from different places and cultures. They, they, they have different colors of skin. They look different and sound different, but they're united into one body with one voice, worshiping the one true and living God who sent His Son to rescue them from their sins. In other words, God's multi-sided wisdom is displayed in a multi-ethnic church who is working in unity to proclaim the gospel mystery to all the nations. So church family, as we live out the gospel mystery, that is, as we view ourselves as having been entrusted with the treasure of the good news to the nations, and as we then proclaim that good news to the nations, and as we do that together, not as black people and brown people and white people separated from one another, but as God's people joined together by nothing less than the powerful blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, a bond that neither death nor the devil can break, as we live out this mystery of the gospel, we are showcasing not only before the watching world, but before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the very breathtaking wisdom of Almighty God. Which means that when we're not doing those things, 
when we're not stewarding the gospel well, and when we're not living in unity with one another in the body of Christ, and when we're not prioritizing the church and the church's mission in our lives, when we hinder the diversity that should exist in the church through our sinful prejudices, we are dimming the light that is to be shining on the diamond of God's manifold wisdom. You see then why a lack of engagement and gospel proclamation would be such an insult to God. Do you see then how racism is such an insult to God? Do you see how favoritism within the church and in the mission uh, efforts of the church is an insult to God? Do you see then how bitterness or undealt with anger or gossip toward a brother or sister in Christ is an insult to God? Because it dims the light that is to be shining on his manifold wisdom, radiating it out through the universe. Church, this is one of the grandest statements in God's word regarding the church. As I think about this verse in my life, and, and, and it's, this verse has been a lot to me for many years, it's one of the statements that pours fuel on the fire of my passion, passion for the church to be as beautiful and healthy and as strong as possible. But when I find myself tempted, and I do, I do. When I find myself tempted to disengage from the church, it's just hard. It's hard. I can just do this Christian life by myself. It'd be just easier if it was just me, myself, and I, right? All I had to deal with was me, right? When I find myself tempted, and we all face that from time to time, when I find myself tempted to disengage with the church, this particular verse, one of the main verses in God's Word that re-engages me in giving myself for the good of the church. I believe this verse should lift our view of the church out of the low level thoughts that we often give to it and help us see that it is not optional in our lives, but it is central in God's eternal plan. It's not one vehicle of making known the manifold wisdom of God. It is the vehicle of getting the gospel to the nations so that the manifold wisdom of God will be on display as it is worthy of being on display. And just, just to make sure we don't forget about Jesus here talking about the manifold wisdom of God, manifold wisdom of God, manifold wisdom of God, just to make sure we don't forget about Jesus as we consider the manifold wisdom of God. Verse 11 puts Jesus smack at the center of it all. Like right there at the center. Look at verse 11. This, that is the making known of God's manifold wisdom through the church, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, without Christ, without him coming, without him dying, without him rising, without him being seated back again as the resurrected Lord in the heavenly places, as we learned in chapter 1, none of this is possible. Right at the center of God's manifold wisdom being made known is the Lord Jesus Christ. Which then makes sense when we turn to the book of Revelation and we see all of heaven directing their attention to the one who is on the throne, the Lamb who has been slain, saying blessing and glory and salvation and honor be to Him who for our sake shed His blood to unite to Himself people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. Christ, the cornerstone, the Messiah, at the center of it all. So it is in Christ, church, that we display the manifold wisdom of God. It's in Christ that we, that is all people from all nations who bow the knee to Jesus, look at what Paul says next, have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Confident access into the throne room of God who, is, who has manifold wisdom. We should be struck down at the sight of the manifold wisdom of God. This bright light radiating out from every angle. 
And yet we have confident access through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone who is in Christ has that equal, confident access. Remember, one gospel, one people, one Savior, one equal access to God through the cross of Christ. That is the manifold wisdom of God. Brothers and sisters, the gospel mystery lived out in the church showcases. That means puts on display this wisdom of God. This is God's purpose behind the gospel mystery. See, it's so easy to have a self-focused reason for God making known a gospel mystery, to make it all about me, to make it all about you, to make it all about us. And it's easy to slide into that because in a way it is. I mean, God sent Jesus to rescue us from our sin, but he did it ultimately for his glory. And that is the greater thing. That is the worthy cause then that encourages us to endure suffering. The fourth and final question I want us to ask in light of this passage is this. We've looked at what is the gospel mystery. We've looked at what our relation is to the gospel mystery, to know and make known the gospel to the nations. We just looked at what is the purpose behind it. It is the the, the making known, the display of the manifold wisdom of God. But then I want to ask this question. What should be our expectation of life right here? Like our expectation for life here on this earth as we steward well the gospel mystery. What does that look like for you and me? Church, our expectation is that we will suffer. But our expectation is that we will gladly suffer for the cause of Christ. The gospel mystery, number four, church, number four, fourth truth, encourages us to gladly endure suffering for the cause of Christ. Don't isolate this point from the the other truths. Don't isolate this final part from everything that we've looked at, building really all the way back to the beginning of Ephesians. We who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We, in chapter 2, who have have been raised up to new life. Halfway through chapter 2, we who once were separated, now being united to God and to one another. This mystery that has been revealed. All of that leads us to gladly endure suffering for the cause of Christ. Don't forget what prompted this entire explanation excuse me, of the gospel mystery. It was the reality that Paul is writing of this good news from prison. Remember that? That's, that's why he didn't just go on to pray when he said, for this reason, and he's getting ready to say, I bow my knees before the Father in heaven, and he stopped because he said, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Literally, Paul was in prison because he stewarded the gospel well. He did what God called him to do. He obeyed. So we have have this transactional view of God so often, even in our Christian life, where we think, if I do something good for God, He'll do something good for me. And our definition of good is a lack of suffering in this life. A removal of pain. And yet there's something far greater. This is, what, this is the case that Paul's been making. I've been seeking to make before us today from God's Word. There's something far greater than our temporary lack of suffering. He was in prison because he stewarded the gospel well. He proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles. Literally, that's why he was there. He's not, he's not just making this up. He's not just kind of making, a, making this statement just for, for, uh, to, to catch their attention. If you go to Acts chapter 21... 
which I would encourage you to do um, later, not, not maybe right now, but this week. Go to Acts chapter 21. Read from 21 through the end of Acts. It goes through chapter 28, um, but read through the end, and you'll see all of this kind of leading up to Paul being landing himself in prison. Uh, but I'll summarize. Acts chapter 21, we read that Paul was arrested by the Jews in Jerusalem on two specific charges. There were two, it wasn't just like, oh, we don't like him. There were actually two specific charges that they arrested him um, on. Number one, he was charged with teaching the Gentiles that they didn't have to adhere to the Jewish law in order to be reconciled to God. You know what that is? That's the second half of chapter 2. That's where Paul says that Christ came to be our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. It's the gospel. And Paul is preaching that saying you don't have to be a Gentiles don't have to be Jews. They don't have to become a Jew in order to be saved. In fact, Gentile and Jew, they need to both trust in Jesus in order to be saved. That was one reason that he was arrested because they felt like he was belittling the, 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 the law of the Jews. He wasn't. He was just interpreting it in light of God's new revelation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then the second charge was that he was charged with bringing a Gentile into the temple. He was charged with bringing it. I mean, I mean they, they knew the person. I mean, specifically, it wasn't just, oh, we think that he brought. No, they were like, he brought that Gentile over there into the temple. And so that's the second reason why we're arresting him. What was Paul doing in that? He was bringing Gentiles to worship the one and true living God. He was, he was bringing them to behold the manifold wisdom of God. He was making known the gospel mystery that had now been revealed. Both charges had to do with his involvement with the Gentiles. And for that reason, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. He was beaten by the Jews. The Roman government stepped in and stopped the beating before they killed Paul. They put him in their custody. He was transported to Caesarea to kind of throw off a plot to kill him by the Jews. Um, and, and after being transported there, he's put on trial. We read about some of those trials where he had an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to many people as he stood on trial. Then he appealed to Caesar. He was a Roman citizen, so he appealed to Caesar. His appeal was granted, and so he was taken to Rome. On the way, he gets shipwrecked. And um, it's just an incredible story. Go read Acts 21 through the end of the book of Acts. And finally, he, after being shipwrecked, he finally makes it to Rome, and there he is in prison. He's writing this letter while in chains in Rome. Paul was in prison because he had preached to the Gentiles, which included the Ephesians. Paul went there on one of his missionary journeys. So he was, they, they were some of the Gentiles to whom he preached, which when the Jews in Jerusalem heard about it, landed him in prison. So how do they respond? Should they be upset? Should they be worried or discouraged? Paul's answer is absolutely not. Verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul does not deny that he is suffering for them, but he says it's for their good. It's been for their inclusion in the people of God. It's been for their reconciliation to God and to one another. It's been for their being raised to new life by the power and love and grace of God. It's been so that they too could share in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And ultimately, Paul is saying in this passage, it has been for the glory of God as the manifold wisdom of God is being made known through the multi-ethnic church. The church that is made up of both Jews and all those from every other ethne, every other nation who believes in Christ. How does the church make known the manifold wisdom of God? By living out the, uni the unity created by the gospel. How do we live out the gospel? Well, first we have to be saved. And then, and then we live in the unity created by the gospel. How does a people come to be saved? 
By hearing the gospel, by someone preaching to them the mystery of the gospel, by someone stewarding well the mystery of Christ. And so that's what Paul's been doing. So do you see here the connection between the glory of God and the mission of God? Do you see the connection between the glory of God and suffering for the cause of Christ? Church, the goal, uh, the goal is the glory of God. That's it. Nothing, there's nothing greater in all of life. All that God does is for His glory. And glorifying God is what you and I were created to do. We were created to worship Him. And so the mission of the church is not merely just to get people into heaven, but it is to tell them how they can become worshipers of the one true God. How they can have and how they can do the only thing that will satisfy the longings of their heart. To worship the God who created them. And so the mission of the church... The mission of the church is directly tied to beholding the manifold wisdom of God. As long as there are people who aren't worshiping the one true God, there is work for us to do. And as we do that work, church, we will face suffering. We will face opposition. There will be difficulties as we live on mission for Christ. Jesus told us very point blank that this is what it would mean to follow him. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross. Remember, that is an instrument of death. It wasn't a necklace that you wore or a bracelet or a decoration that you hung on the wall of your house. It was a means of capital punishment in that day and time. Take up your cross. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my follower, let him take up his cross. And deny himself daily and follow me. What would make us want to do such a thing? What would make us want to run gladly into suffering? I mean, one obvious answer is compassion. Compassion that the gospel creates in our hearts for the nations. Paul said it was for their glory. In other words, it was for their good. His suffering for them meant salvation had come to them. But there's another reason besides simply for the good of others that would make us want to run gladly into suffering for the cause of Christ. And it's a deeper reason. It's the reason that undergirds our compassion for the lost. It is the reason of a passion for the glory of God to be made known throughout the entire world. Church, worship is the fuel for missions. Worship is the fuel for missions. It is as we gaze into the glory of God that we come to find that our suffering for the cause of Christ is worth it. It is as we are overwhelmed time and time again with the greatness of the glory of God that we will then be willing to suffer to get the gospel to those who are not living in worship of God. And so Paul says, so So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. What's behind that word so? It is the manifold wisdom of God being made known to the entire universe. It is the glory of God. Perhaps we could summarize Paul's words this way. I'm in prison right now on your behalf. I'm suffering right now for you, but don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. For not only has my suffering led to your benefit, But because my suffering for preaching the gospel to the nations has led to the salvation of Gentiles and their inclusion in the people of God, because my suffering has increased the diversity in the church and therefore diversity among the worshipers of God, my suffering is increasing the visibility of the glory, the manifold wisdom of God. And what in the world could be greater than that, Paul is saying. In other words, the more Paul saw the glory of God becoming magnified through the church, the more Gladly, he was willing to suffer to that end, for there is nothing greater than the glory of God. You see, the greater the cause for which we live, the more courage we will have in facing suffering for that cause. The problem is that so often we live for something far below the glory of God. 
There's no greater cause than showcasing the glory of God through the proclamation of the gospel to the nations and through the application of the gospel of Jesus among God's people as we live in unity, declaring the message that Jesus saves. And so I want to ask you a question. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are you overwhelmed? Are you amazed at the glory of God? Are you captivated by it? Is the glory of God propelling you? Is it propelling me into suffering for the cause of Christ? If not, then the problem is not that God's glory is less than what it should be. The problem is that our gaze is fixed on something less than the glory of God. What this passage is telling us is that our gaze is fixed on the glory of God. If that is our passion, there's no doubt what our lives will look like. We will give ourselves, no matter the cost, to making known the name of Christ, both here and around the world. Oh, that God would give us the grace to behold the glory of God so that His glory would propel us into a lost world with the good news of mystery revealed. The gospel mystery, church, is that Christ has come for the nations, and by God's grace, it has been revealed to us so that we can proclaim it to the nations. We're to live out this gospel mystery in the church in order to showcase the manifold wisdom of God. And when we do, the glory of God seen in this gospel mystery encourages us to gladly suffer for the cause of Christ. Church, by God's grace and for His glory, We know and make known the gospel among the nations, no matter the cost. Would you bow your heads with me? Oh God, as I consider how glorious you are. God, I know that my thoughts of your glory, are they they fall short of, of how glorious you are. God, would you help me to see in a way that I've never seen before your manifold wisdom. But Father, you've told us how we and others, including the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, can see your manifold wisdom. It is as we believe and then live out the good news of the gospel. And so Father, fueled by a passion that your glory would be made known and magnified to the ends of the earth and beyond the earth to the heavenly places. God, may that desire fuel our passion to take the gospel to the nations, to live in unity with one another in the body of Christ. Father, overwhelm us with your glory so that we will be propelled into your mission. In Jesus' name, amen.